Oh, good evening. It's so good to see all of you here tonight. Revelation chapter 3 this evening, as we continue our series through the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have the message of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, to his people, the church. And in these seven churches, there are seven messages that are not only relevant to the church's at that particular time, but it is a message that transcends the ages. It is a message from Jesus that is just as relevant for us, the church today, as it was some 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave this to John. So tonight we're going to be looking at the last three of the seven churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as I shared last week, the way we're going to do this is by following, if you will, the pattern, rhythm, or order that Jesus has set down in his message. There, there's a way Jesus is talking to each church, and there's a, a commonality that he deals with each church with. And the first thing is that he identifies himself through the angel, the guardian angel of that church, to the church. So you'll notice... In chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus Christ is in control of the spirit of God, the sevenfold spirit of God, and in control of the guardian angels of the church. And the reason it's a solemn pronouncement is because this is God who's speaking to his church. Notice in chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? This is the solemn pronouncement of the Holy One, the one who is holy other than anything or anyone else in the universe that he created. He is the true one, the genuine one, the faithful one, the one who holds the key of David, the one who has authority to open doors and no one can shut and shut doors that no one can open. And then over in chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the amen, the God who confirms and verifies the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, literally the source and ruler of all that God created. This is his identity to each of these churches. So no wonder then, after he identifies himself, Somewhere in the message, usually towards the end, he says these words. Look at verse 6. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, the Son of God, God of very God, is speaking to his people. And he is saying, as I speak, my Spirit is taking what I say and he is teaching my people. He's applying it as it needs to be applied. And, and we need to be in tune with the Spirit of God as he takes the message of Jesus and then fits it to our hearts and minds. We better hear it because this just isn't anyone speaking here. This is God speaking to us. Notice he says the same thing again to the church at Philadelphia in verse 13. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the church. Over and over again. And by the way, the word churches in each of these cases is plural because, again, 
This is not just a message to these seven churches. This is a message to the church down through the ages. And then finally, verse 22 of chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to make sure that we are fine-tuning our spiritual senses to God, that our ears are open and that we are saying, Lord, I'm listening. Speak. Your servant is listening for you. I'm, I'm tuning in. I, I want to hear what you have to say to me as a part of the church and what you have to say to us as a church. God, speak. We're listening, okay? One other one here, and this is unique. Out of all the messages to the seven churches, Jesus has an extra one for the church at Laodicea, and we'll talk about why a little bit later. But I want to I want to couple it with the whole hearing part because notice how Jesus starts out in verse 20 of Revelation 3. He says, listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. When I was younger, this verse was applied by many to speak of evangelism that Jesus Christ was knocking on people's heart's door. And if they just opened up their heart to the Lord, the Lord would come in. Now, that's certainly true, but that's not what this verse is teaching, nor is it in the proper context. Jesus is outside his own church, the church at Laodicea. He wants to come in to his church. See, in a sense, Jesus has become simply a figurehead in his own church. He, he's like part of the decoration, but he's not part of the warp and woof or the very fabric or the very, the very DNA of the church. It, it, he's not the life breath of the church. He's not the center of the church, and that's what he needs to be, and that's what he wants to be. Because notice here, He's not simply asking the church to open the door because Jesus, a perfect gentleman, is not going to force his way even into his church if they don't want him there, you see. He wants to be invited in. And you'll notice something here. Jesus doesn't just want to be invited into the church. He says, I want to come in, and I want to sit down with all of you and what? Share a meal. Why is that significant? Because in Bible times, a meal shared with someone else was very significant. It was um, table fellowship. It, it was to speak of intimacy and communion and fellowship and communication. It was more than the sharing of food with one another. It was the opportunity to share hearts with one another. This is one of the things that even the church today misses when we call uh, fellowship just simply down and eating together. That's technically not biblical fellowship, just sharing a meal together. 
Fellowship is when we open up our lives and our hearts to one another and where we begin to build a relationship and where we can get in on a deeper level than simply surfacey type stuff, superficial type stuff. And that's what Jesus is wanting here with this church. That's what he wants in every church. He doesn't want to be outside simply as a figurehead. He doesn't want to be just part of the decoration. He wants to be the very center of everything. He wants to be the life of the church. He wants to be everything that the church wants and needs can be found in him. And he wants to build an intimacy, a closeness, a nearness to his people so that, again, you and I can begin to sense his presence and his moving and all of that. That's what Jesus wants. So Jesus saying, listen, I want more than just simply being in your parking lot. I want more than simply just being out in the lobby or even just being present in the auditorium. I want to sit down with you, and I want to share a meal with you. Listen, this is what Jesus wants the church to hear. Now, the next part of this orderly rhythm that Jesus has here with all these messages is back to chapter 3 and verse 1, where he says in the middle of the verse, I know. In each of these messages, Jesus says, I know. He knows the condition of the church. He knows the strengths. He knows the weaknesses. He knows what they're doing well. He knows what they're deficient in. He knows. Notice this repeated over in chapter 3, verse 8, to the church at Philadelphia. I know your deeds. And then finally in verse 15, to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds. And as we said last week, Jesus Christ knows exactly what's going on in every church, just like he does in every life, because he is the omniscient God. He knows everything, but he also knows the condition of every church experientially because as we talked about last week, look at chapter 2, verse 1, he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and the seven golden lampstands are representative of the church. He is literally, and then if you go back to verse 13 of chapter 1, he is in the midst of the lampstands. Smack dab, right there. See, he's right here. Now, again, so when Jesus says, yes, I'm right there, but I want to be invited in, he's not contradicting himself. Again, as God, he's everywhere, right? But Jesus is saying, I want more than just to be there. I want to be the main part of everything that's going on. I want, I want to be the center of your worship. I want to be the center of the study of your word. I want to be the center of your fellowship. I, I want to draw you into me, and as you, I draw you into me, I want to draw you into each other. I, I, want to, I, I want to just be, again, the very fabric and DNA of everything that you do in that church. I want, to, I want every time you're together to be like a sit-down meal where we're not just sharing food with each other, we're sharing our hearts with each other. That's what he wants. That's the level of fellowship that Jesus wants. So he knows, based on his omniscience, he also knows because he's right here in the midst. And what does he know? Well, let's go back to the church at Sardis. By the way, out of these three churches tonight, two of them are not in a good place. One of them is. 
Look first at the church at Sardis. In the middle of verse 1, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation that you are alive, but in reality you are dead. That is huge. Notice Jesus is saying, to you all maybe and to everyone around you that looks at you as a local church, you look like you got it. You're, you're, you're there. You're alive. There's a lot of activity going on, and there's a lot of ministry going on, and there's this going on, and that going on, and this program, and that program, and you have a reputation in the world that you are a live church. But he says, your reputation isn't reality when it comes to, from my perspective. And one of the things that reminds us of is this. Do we care more about what our reputation is amongst people or what our reputation is to God? Doesn't it matter more what God thinks of us as a church than it does what other people think of us as a church? Because that's really what counts. And many times Jesus pointing out reputation and reality aren't the same thing. We have to take stock of that even individually. What is our reputation and what's the reality? What are we really like that maybe other people don't see? Because as we know, all of our lives are like an iceberg. What most people see is just that little percentage above the waterline. Most of it's below the water. Reputation, reality. And God wants reality. He wants transparency. He wants us to be real people. And he wants us to be real in his sight, not real in everybody else's sight if it's not real to him. That's what he knows, okay? Notice what he knows about the church of Philadelphia over in verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. Look, I have put in front of you an open door that no one can shut. Why is he talking about open and shut doors? Because this church was being oppressed. This church was being persecuted. This church was being intimidated. And he does not want this church to be intimidated. He's saying, look, I'm the Lord of glory. If I open up a door for you, you walk right through it. Don't, don't, don't define yourself by the world in which you live and, and your enemies and your opposition. Your enemies will always be greater than you. They'll always have greater resources than you have. But you've got me, and that's all that you need. I know that you have little strength. By the way, this is the only time Jesus references the size of a church in all seven messages. Basically, that phrase in the original means they're a very small church, okay? Which also then reminds us that as far as God is concerned, size is not always a sign of success. Because out of all the seven churches, the church in Philadelphia is the one that Jesus commends more than any other. Notice what he says. I know that you have little strength, but you have obeyed my word and not denied my name in spite of the fact that there's a lot of pressure for you to do so. So notice what Jesus also knows. He says, listen, I'm going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan, whoa, He's saying, they're, the, the people who are bothering you, persecuting you, and oppressing you, they're not from my house. They're being used as instruments of Satan himself. They're, they're not my church. They're, they're part of Satan's band. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. They say they're Jews. No, they're not. They're lying. Look. I'm going to make them come at some point in the future, and I'm going to literally make them bow down at your feet and acknowledge, notice this, that I have loved you. Whoa. In all of this, Christ's purpose 
is the universal recognition that these faithful sufferers are truly loved by God. That's an important principle. God may want to encourage you with that tonight. Maybe you're going through a time of suffering in your life. And even we can begin to question, God, if you love me, why are you allowing me to suffer like I'm doing? And then maybe other people begin to question, well, if God really loved them, why would he allow them to go through that? Jesus saying, I want you to know that even when I allow you to go through suffering, that never diminishes my love for you in any way. If, if I'm allowing that suffering, it's for far greater purposes. But my love for you never goes away. Nothing can separate us from that love. His love is as strong for us when we're going through pain and suffering as it is when everything's good. His love is constant. And he wants those that are giving this church a hard time one day to literally acknowledge that. Jesus loved you guys, even though he allowed you to go through that. Notice what else Jesus knows. Verse 10, because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world to those that live on the earth. See, I believe that God is promising that the church will not go through the tribulation because this is the time that the whole world is going through that, which Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, a time unlike any other time before or since or after. There will never be a time of testing like that time. And Jesus is saying, here's what I know. I'm going to keep you from that. Okay? That's what he knows. Now, notice what he knows about the church in Philadelphia. Verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Cold or hot? What's Jesus saying here? Well, you have to know a little bit about the area, okay? Laodicea was part of a tri-city thing. There was Laodicea, and then there was Hierapolis, and then there was Colossae. They were all very close together. And from Hierapolis, here's how you'll remember that, H, standing for hot, Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. Hot springs that were very medicinal, provided healing, if you will, for many people. That's what it was known for in the area. C, Colossae was known for its cold, refreshing water, water that would provide refreshment. That's why Jesus is saying, I wish you were either cold or hot, cold like Colossae's water so that you could be refreshing to others, or hot like Hierapolis's hot springs so that you could be, you know, providing something beneficial there, you know, healing waters or whatever. You're neither. You're totally ineffective. You're not helping anything. And here's what Jesus also knows. He says, here's the reason why they're in such a bad condition. Because you say, verse 17, we're rich. We have acquired great wealth. We don't need anything. And he says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Whoa. Several things in there. First of all, here's the reason why this church is in a bad condition that it is. 
It's smug. It's self-absorbed. It's self-complacent. It's, it's just like, no, we're good. We don't need you, God. We're good. We've got this. May we as a people, may we as a church never get to the place where we don't feel like we need the Lord. We need him every moment of our life. We need him every day. Lord, we need you. And we may need to make sure that we declare that. May we never become so strong, so wealthy, so full of our own selves and our resources that we feel like we don't need to depend or rely on the Lord anymore. And then here's the double tragedy of the whole thing. They don't even realize it. Notice what he says there in verse 17. They are completely unaware of their pitiful spiritual condition as a church. Because guess what? When you and I aren't aligned with God, we can again regress, as we've been talking about in our spiritual growth series, to a place where we're totally oblivious to how bad off we really are. Now think about that. that that's important. That might explain some things about some seasons in our own life. And it might even explain to us or give us some insight on some others that we know and why they struggle so, because they're not even aware of their poor spiritual condition. They're totally oblivious to it. See, when you and I don't practice being sensitive to the Spirit of God every day and listening to God and all that, we can get to a place where we're just sort of unaware. We don't even realize it. So these are the things that Jesus knows in each and every case. But here's the great thing about our God, right? He, in every case, provides the answer and the solution because Jesus always is willing to say, even when there's some really bad things, he'll come into a life and he'll say, we can correct that. If you just listen to me, I'll give you the solution. I'll give you the prescription that you need in order to get back to a good condition. So notice what it is back in chapter 3, verse 2 to the church at Sardis. There are five commands in this section, all focusing on the need for spiritual vigilance. And the first one really emphasizes that. He says to the church, wake up. You're asleep. You're spiritually taking a nap. He says, you've got to wake up and then strengthen what remains. What little bit of, of strength is still there in that church, you've got to fan the flame and, and get it back. You're not totally dead, but you're on life support. You, you are a terminally ill church. And unless you, you know, take the bull by the horns and start making some changes, you're going to die. You're going to die. Notice verse 3, therefore, remember what you've received, heard, and obey it and repent. There's the five commands. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, and repent. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will never know at the hour I will come against you. Whoa. Now, here's the other thing, though. Jesus does point out, oh, you have a few. You have a little bit of a remnant there in that church, and, and, and they've stayed by the stuff. They've been faithful. And, and you know what? If they continue to be faithful, they're going to walk with me one day dressed in white because they are worthy. 
Jesus says, that's what I know. I've got the answer. Wake up, church. Strengthen what, what little bit remains. Remember, obey, and repent. That's the answer for that church. Now notice the church in Philadelphia. What's his message to them? Well, again, he has no correction for the church in Philadelphia, which is very interesting, isn't it? That actually the two churches that he commends without any correction are the two of the seven churches that are suffering the most, going through the most trials and tribulations and persecutions. There is something to be said about when, when churches or individuals go through the fire, that there is a refinement, there is a, a purification. All the dross is sort of burned away, and what you're left with there is, is you know, those that really, you know, mean business. I've, I've said for many years, and, and I base this on the book of Acts, you don't need a large group of Christians to turn the world upside down. The book of Acts is a testimony of that. In fact, I've said, you give me 100 people at the Oasis, 100 people on fire for God, and we could turn this whole East Valley on its head. 100 people totally on fire for God. You, you don't need a large group. What all God is looking for are those that are totally devoted and sold out to him. And man, when he finds those kind of people, he can work with them. He can work with them. So notice the message to the church at Philadelphia is simply this, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. Just all their responsibility is just keep on keeping on. Just persevere. Keep doing what you're doing. Now, I will say this. The present tense here in the original language demands constant effort to maintain their walk with Christ. There is no, you know, I can just put it on cruise control. That's not holding on, you see. Holding on demands continuous effort. The other thing I want to point out is this. Notice that Jesus points out in verse 11 of chapter 3 that you and I can allow other people to basically steal our reward from us in eternity. We give them a power in our lives or over us that they don't have, but we allow them to have. That's why he said, don't let anyone take your crown. You've already achieved a crown of victory. You've endured. You've persevered. I am pleased with you. You just got to hang in there. But don't get to a place where you let someone else come in and begin to influence you to do any different than what you're already doing. Because then, in a sense, they're going to take that reward that you've already earned away from you, you see. That's what Jesus' advice is. And then finally, in verse 18 here to the church at Laodicea, here's his advice, and he literally has in verse 18, take my advice. Buy gold from me refined by fire so you can become rich. You think you're rich? No, you're not. You, you need what? Only I can give. That's why he's using the language of a marketplace and using himself. He's saying, I'm your one-stop shop. You, you don't need to go anywhere else. You don't need to look to anyone else. If you just come to me, I will supply for you. I will provide for you as a church everything you need to truly be spiritually wealthy. You see, 
Then he says, buy for me white clothing so you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. Buy eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And Jesus is using things that the people in Laodicea would know because these are the things that they were known for. Their eye salve, their, their, clo uh, their clothing, all of these things. He's making it very practical to them. He's saying, but you don't think you need me. But if you would change and repent and come to me, you would find that I'll make you wealthy and I'll bless you and I'll shower you with my favor. That's what you need. Then in verse 19, he says, all those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He's expressing a, a strong desire from this church to get right with God. Be earnest and repent. Make it your number one goal. We need to get back with God. We need to start doing the things that God wants us to do. So in every case, Jesus identifies himself. He says, because I am God and I'm speaking to you, my people, because I love you, okay, listen to me. Listen to me as the Spirit of God conveys my message to you. Remember, I know. I know everything in your life. I know everything in the life of your church. I know exactly what's going on. First of all, because I'm the omniscient God, and second, because I'm right in the midst. Now, here's what I know. And in each case, each church obviously has different needs, different things that they needed, but obviously all that can be applied to the church today, right? And basically what he's saying in each and every case is what you're going to find out as a church is that what you really need is me, more of me, more about Jesus, more of Jesus, if you will. And as we then get our priorities straight as a people and as churches, then notice how he ends every message. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 5, in every case, he encourages every church with, the one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who conquers. We saw this phrase used four times last week, and we'll see it used three times this week. He's saying, listen, you can overcome. You can, you can be spiritually victorious. And as we again said last week, here's why. Because Jesus Christ already won the victory. On the cross, he said, it is finished. And at that point, the victory was secured for all time. You and I have to just learn to partner with him in his victory that he's already won. We just have to learn to live in him and live in the victory that he already gives us. That's why Paul said to the Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do we really believe that? That we can overcome, that we can see victory in our life rather than defeat, that, that we can be victorious and be conquerors through Jesus Christ. So he says, to the one who conquers, and every one of us can, we'll be dressed like them in white clothing. By the way, white clothing is a symbol of spiritual victory. And he says, I will never erase his name from the book of life. We are kept secure in Christ. Unlike what many interpret this verse to mean that there's a chance that someone's name could be erased from the book of life, this phrase in the original gives no room for that at all. What Christ is actually affirming is once your name is there, it's there for good. And then even think about that logically. 
Does God ever waste time and do stuff that's unnecessary? So if God knows everything, why would God write someone's name in the book knowing at some later date he'd have to erase it out of the book? Why would he go to, why not just wait and put it in there once and for all and then leave it there? God doesn't go back and write people's names in and then erase it again as if he didn't know what was going to happen in the future. He's the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Then notice this. He says, I will declare his name before my father and before his angels. You know what verse I thought of there where Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Notice something here. I I know this is hard for us to believe, right? Because all of us are going to be like awestruck, right? We're in heaven. We're in glory. There's the Lord of glory standing there. And we're like, oh, you know. And what's Jesus going to do? He's going to say, Father, here's Jeff. There's John. There's Nicole. I mean, and and I love them, God. And I died for them. And I'm so happy they're here. There's Bob and Joan. And he's going to call us by name. He's going to acknowledge. He's going to say, they were were a a great servant of mine. And he's going to do it not only, he says, in front of my father, in front of all the angels. He's going to acknowledge us because we were willing to acknowledge him. What what an honor he's going to bestow to those that conquer. Then notice verse 12 to the church at Philadelphia. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never depart from it. Pillar stands for our status, a great status. And never departing speaks of our stability. And then he says this, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name as well. We're going to be tattooed all up with names, right? (laughs) Not really. But here's what I want to point out. What Jesus is reminding us of is, to the one who conquers, our identity is all wrapped up in him. He stamped us. And in a sense, he's already stamped us, right? He stamped us with the Holy Spirit. That's the seal. That's the mark of authentication. He says, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. When things were sealed, as we're going to see You know, next week, in a couple weeks, when when Jesus begins to break the seals of this great book, that's the thing that, that's my authority. It's under my authority, my responsibility. That's mine. It belongs to me. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to have my name, you're going to have the name of your new Jerusalem, your new residence, and you're going to have a new name, a new name. See, in a sense, the mark of the beast that the Antichrist gives to people on the earth, the earth dwellers, is a counterfeit to the mark of Jesus that he's going to give his followers for all of eternity, to the ones who conquer. And then finally tonight, over to Laodicea, verse 21, I will grant the one who conquers permission, permission to sit with me on my throne just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Can I tell you? If that, if that doesn't 
bowl you over. Jesus, the Lord of glory, is willing to share his throne with us. Who are we, right? And yet that's who he is. He's willing to give everything for us. First of all, we didn't deserve salvation, and we certainly don't deserve an eternal throne to rule and reign from. But Jesus is saying to his people, if you will simply be faithful to me, and you will overcome, and you will be victorious, and and you will just stay by the stuff, you will rule and reign with me for all of eternity. Yeah, amen. It's just incredible. It is just simply a reminder that our God withholds no good thing from those he loves. I mean, if we doubt the love of God, when when you and I start going through just some of the major things, the fact that he died for us that was undeserving, and then the fact that he's going to allow us to exist for all of eternity in a perfect environment, didn't deserve that either, But to go beyond that and go, oh, by the way, you're going to be able to sit on the very throne that is my throne that I'm going to share with you. That's how much I think of you. That's how much I value you. That's how much you are worth to me, that I will share my throne with you. He loved us enough that he wouldn't share his cross with us. He took that all himself. But the good stuff, he shares with us. What a Savior. What a God. And that's why this book needs to be opened. That's why this book needs to be read. That's why this book needs to be studied. Because more than anything else, it reveals to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, And we can grow in our appreciation and adoration and admiration for him like no other because it truly reveals who he is to his people and what he has planned for us if we will simply follow him all the days of our life. I think Jesus is saying to us tonight as a church, I don't ever want to be out in that parking lot having to knock on that front door asking to come in. I'm here Let me stay. And all I can say is I hope all of us say, Jesus, you never have to leave. Just like we sung about, I just want to sit at your feet. That's all I want, God. I just want more of you. God, we thank you tonight for these messages that you have given to your people, the church. And God, yet we have been reminded that there are many churches that are not in a good place. They may think they're in a good place, but with you, they're not. They may have a reputation, but the reality is so much different. Or they may be like the church at Laodicea that, Lord, they're totally oblivious to where they are. But God, I just pray that we will never get to that place. That we will never get to a place in our life, no matter how good things are going and how much you're blessing and how much you're pouring out your favor upon us, 
how we're seeing you move and work that we don't ever get to a place, God, where we don't feel like we need you, nor that we want you, God, because that's, that's what it really is. We, we want you, God, desperately to be a part of everything in our own lives and everything in the life of our church. We don't want anything to be done at the Oasis Church that doesn't have you right in the middle of it. We want this to be about you, not us. We want to exalt you because, God, you're the answer. And yet, God, you have given us a great privilege and opportunity, God, to, to be used by you to show others that you're the answer, to point people to you. And so I pray, God, that in the days that we live, where so many are groping around and, and seeking something and searching for something, God, that they can find you through us. And God, may we just be humbled tonight by what awaits us. So much, God, that we don't deserve at all. And yet, God, you're willing to share your throne with your people. God, that's indescribable. I have no words. You're just an amazing God. And I pray that we'll never get over how amazing you are, God. May you take us home tonight with hearts filled with wonder and awe of who you are, and may you wake us up, if, if that's your will, to give us another day of life, and may we wake up tomorrow morning just having hearts filled with wonder and awe at who you are, God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you'll come back next week. Revelation 4 and 5. We got some good stuff coming. See you next week. <laughs>